Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. race is on and Max Verstappen took his record 14th win of the season in the Mexican Grand Prix with yet another brilliantly dominant performance. But did Mercedes get its strategy wrong? And if so, was the car quick enough to win on the right tyres? I'm Ed Straw and joining us to reveal all are Scott mitchell Mown and Mark Hughes. Scott, have you been enjoying Mexico? Enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, it's always um, this is always one of the most fun races to come to in terms of the, the, the passion, enthusiasm, the colour everything that you would expect really for, for, for a race in, in Mexico. Um, obviously did this race last year, so it isn't one like uh, Austin, for example, or Singapore where I've had a bit of time away, but nonetheless still very excited to come back. And although it was a race that didn't, um, didn't quite spark into life in the way I was hoping at the front, it was interesting enough for a lot of it for me to, I, I wasn't, I wasn't counting down the laps for, for, for most of it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it was one of those, wasn't it, Mark? Just a little bit of intrigue. So it wasn't a, a gripping thriller, but there was always something to be thinking about or something that maybe could happen. Exactly, yeah. It wasn't. It didn't quite take a light, but um, yeah, it might have done. But uh, if the you know those pesky tyres had behaved slightly differently. <laughs> That's the complaint of many people at times in, uh, in Formula One. But we shall have plenty of opportunity to unpick the race, so we'll crack straight into it. And Mark, we'll have a bit of a twist on the usual how the race was one question here and instead ask how Mercedes lost it, given hopes were high of taking the fight to Verstappen. Um, getting their tyre choice wrong, in hindsight that is, lost them any chance of taking the fight to Verstappen, which they, they otherwise looked capable of doing um, for the first time really this year. But it certainly wasn't a done deal that it would have won even on the same tyre strategy. When you take the fuel load offset into account and you compare the pace of Verstappen and Hamilton on the medium, it looks like Max has still got around about tenth and a half on him. So to have won, either Russell or Hamilton would have needed to have started on the same tyre and won the start and somehow not got undercut. So it was a bit of a stretch anyway. Um, but with their respective tyre strategies, was, of course, it was no contest. Yeah, and of course, Max Verstappen in the end taking a relatively dominant victory as a result with Lewis Hamilton. Second, as always, we've got questions from the race members club. So we'll cycle through some of those because obviously there's a lot of interest in the Mercedes strategy. The first question, Mark, comes from Christopher Partridge. who says, what on earth were Mercedes thinking? Abandoning their strategy of medium to soft so quickly in favour of the hard tyre. Did they bottle it? Danny Rick proved it was a sound strategy. If they had stuck with it, would Hamilton have won the race? So what was the strategic thinking was medium to soft ever on the cards, or was it always going to be a uh, a medium hard approach? The um, the the medium soft was a sound strategy. Um, Ricciardo was able to use it because he was not under any undercut threat from behind, so he could go long enough on the mediums to be able to get onto the soft. Now that wasn't an option there for Hamilton because he had Perez right behind him, but it might have been an option for Russell. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a strategy that Mercedes abandoned 
Christopher, it was um, that they didn't have it in the first place because they believed wrongly, as it later turned out, that the combined range of the medium and the soft would have left them around 20 laps short, i.e. 20 laps of lapping very slowly on knackered tyres. So the plan was always to go on to the hards. Um, they later considered extending Russell long enough to get him onto the softs, but they felt his mediums were falling off quickly enough that the softs weren't going to pull him back the time he was already losing to Perez, which was about a second a lap at that time because Perez had stopped. And it just sort of confirmed their earlier idea that they didn't have the range to do that. It was sort of confirmation bias, if you like, and then they, they brought him in because they thought it was going to do more damage leaving him out. Um, the, you know, they, 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 they didn't really, um, they, they, they came into the race, not knowing if it was a one or a two stop. And they, the idea of starting on the mediums, um, in, in that instance was that if they didn't have the range with a combination of soft and medium to do a one stop, at least they were covered. If they start on the medium, they could do either a one or a two stop. That was the thinking going in. You've partly answered this next question, but Scott, Daniel Booth says, as you record this podcast, are Mercedes still waiting for Verstappen's mediums to drop off? And slightly less sarcastically, was there merit in Mercedes' ultra-conservative strategy today? It seemed destined for a soft-medium versus medium-soft showdown, yet Mert decided to throw hards into the mix for some reason. What did I miss? Now, we've covered that detail of the, the tyre choice, but what did you make of the Merck strategy as a whole? Yeah, I don't know if it was conservative as such. I think it was just a bit unimaginative once the race started. So... I can understand why Mercedes may well have had a, a, an idea that you know Red Bull would want to maintain track position and, and start on the softs. And given what the drivers were talking about, about the straight line speed of the Red Bull, I think they knew that they weren't really going to overtake them on track. So the only option would be to do something different on strategy. And Mercedes clearly felt going into the race, as Mark was explaining, medium hard was the way to go. What I don't understand is as the race played out, as that first stint played out, I don't really understand why Mercedes couldn't have reacted to the circumstances and felt that actually we weren't, we're not going to need the hard here. We could just extend, extend, extend. And, and I understand that they maybe didn't want to sacrifice track position necessarily, but it, it just, honestly, it felt, I said unimaginative, and I, I feel like obviously James Vowles is in, in, in charge there strategically. And it felt a little bit like Mercedes were just going to blindly follow what the sort of pre-race prediction was and what the data said, which is fine in a lot of circumstances, but it felt like that took precedent over reading what was happening in front of them. And I feel like the realisation dawned on them far too late in the Grand Prix that the mediums were not going to drop off. With all the evidence that we saw in the first stint, you look at how far someone like Ricardo was able to go on the mediums in the first stint and obviously by the end of the second stint everything's working a bit better anyway there's a bit more there's a bit more grip um the the fuels come out of the car so you, there, there, there was no real question that they'd be able to go that far so the bit I don't understand is why they didn't or couldn't react to what was in front of them but maybe I've but maybe I've missed something there I think Scott the the um it wasn't so much that they were uh, predicting by that stage that the medium was uh, going to drop off. I think they were hoping that it was because they'd already committed by um, pulling them in off the off the original mediums um, early. 
because they were uh, seeing drop-off. And, and maybe that drop-off would have stabilized if they just extended. Um, but they were fearing, because they were seeing the drop-off, they were fearing it was confirming what they'd already thought, that you know that it had a relatively short range. Um, so that's why they, they put them fairly early on onto the hards and, and then just had to hope that the mediums on the Red Bulls would, would drop off the same way that theirs had. But um, of course they didn't. And we still have some more questions on a similar theme. So again, covering some of the same ground, but there's always different emphasis here. Sean Murphy says, given the amount of data available to these teams, how are Mercedes not aware that the mediums could go that long? As they were so long lasting, how could they think that a medium hard strategy could beat a soft medium one? If Ferrari made this call, surely they would be pilloried for it. Mark, do you think they should be pilloried for this Mercedes? Um, <laughs> well, I, I don't think Ferrari should be uh, when 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 they when they get it wrong. Um, usually, um, so I don't think Mercedes should be because it's a it's a dynamic situation. It's not an exact science. It's not like you know how how, how can you not know? It's um, it's easy to see in hindsight, but it's it's such a dynamic situation that it's it's often quite impossible to call in lifetime. Um, uh, at this altitude, with how quickly the track temperature soars and dives, totally changing the tyre traits and the handling traits along the way, you can get it wrong for all the right reasons, and just as you can get it right for the wrong ones. Um, that, that said, I believe Red Bull got it right for the right reasons, but Merck's reasoning wasn't stupid. It was just wrong in hindsight, and yeah, Ferrari would get pilloried if they'd done that, but it would still have only it would still have the, the same only wrong in hindsight logic, if you see what I mean. The key bit of what Merck did that I think in the moment didn't really make much sense to me was not splitting the strategies around the first pit stops. I understand why they would want to put both of them on the medium because my, my and this is a bit of a guess, but my guess would be that either of those cars could have emerged ahead of the other at the end of the first lap. And then if you think that the medium is the best tire to be on to attack the, the Red Bull, you, you want both your drivers to have that opportunity. But what I don't understand is why in the middle of that race when you had you know especially as russell was not off the back of but you know he was the the last car in that quartet hamilton was chasing verstappen why why not split the strategy why not react to the data that you're getting from other cars that are running longer and look look how long everyone's eking out the softs and this kind of thing i don't i did, that's that's probably the bit i take issue with most i feel like that was an opportunity to split and be a bit bolder and be a bit more aggressive. And I just feel like they went, no, we're just going to play it a bit safe and stick with what we think is going to happen in this Grand Prix. I did wonder if they might split at the start, actually, and start one of them on softs. Presumably, you'd start Russell on softs in the hope of, of getting ahead, basically because that track position at the start was so important. I thought that might create some interesting opportunities, but obviously they went for reasons we've discussed with both on mediums. Question from Danny Elliott, who says, was there a chance to pit Russell for the soft tyre during that brief virtual safety car period? That, of course, was late in the race when Alonso uh, stopped. I'll answer that one. There was the chance, but there wasn't really much point in it a it was a very short vsc the mercedes crew did come out onto the onto the pit lane just in case but there wasn't really much to gain from that and they felt it was more sensible to leave the car there close enough to perez to maybe benefit which i think is perfectly reasonable and a question from oscar robledo for you scott how often are drivers more correct than the engineers about the relative performance of the tire compounds do you think that russell could have finished higher than he did if he had stayed on the mediums and changed to the softs later in the race because he did radio in to say that's what he wanted to do and that would have been a better strategy uh, i wouldn't like to guess on what the sort of percentage is in terms of this but 
I, I'll pick the, an obvious example from earlier this year when it when we had the changing of the the changing conditions in Monaco. You know, should you go from wet to winter or, or stay out? And you know, Carlos Sainz was very vocal about wanting to make sure that um, he 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 could feel where the grip was, and he felt that actually the switchover point to um, just to go fully onto slicks was would would come too too quickly. It wouldn't be worth it, and. Having spoken to Charles Leclerc, he he regrets not being being that vocal. He could have overturned the, the team's decision back in Monaco. It does happen sometimes. The drivers are, are are the ones in the right, but it does feel quite condition dependent. I do feel like in mixed conditions, that's where you trust the driver a bit more. But I see why even in the dry, sometimes sometimes the the, the driver's just got a bit of an idea. We we hear it a lot with. Um, Hamilton's pretty good at, at being vocal and saying actually tires are good. I think I can extend. Um, there's been a couple of times this year where, where where Russell has tried to get a bit vocal over the radio, and I think um, I think he got what he wanted in, at Zandvoort, didn't he? But he didn't get what he wanted here. Um, so there's a little bit little bit hit and miss. I feel like Russell would have had a better chance of doing something better than he did. I can't say whether he would have finished higher up, but I just feel like he'd have been a bit more on the front foot if they'd done that. It's an interesting one, isn't it? The, the the driver or the pit wall, and I think um, you know the, the the driver's got the feel, obviously, but the pit wall have the numbers and the overview. Um, and the other thing is the drivers, by nature, more gung ho than the engineers. So um, it'd be interesting to see a driver on the pit wall without any training, just 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 do it by feel. He should come up with some crazy strategies, but they might work every now and again. But um, with Russell, it did look like his mediums were dropping off, so. He would probably have lost a lot of time staying out. The softs would then have allowed him to have made a big chunk of it back, but enough to still have any tire left to be able to pass Perez with by the time he got there, probably not. I personally think it would have given an exact same result, but it would have been worth a try. Yeah, exactly. I think we can say probably the strategic choices weren't 100% the right ones in hindsight, but I'm not convinced it fundamentally changed the result overall. That's why it, it's not kind of one of those Ferrari style blunders where you feel they've really shot themselves in the in the foot. But yeah, it's always very easy on strategy to know after the fact. Well Scott, let's talk a little bit about the race winner. Christian Horner suggested after the race that the quality of Max Verstappen's performances in races like this are sometimes overlooked. Is that the case or is he, as some might have it, just sat in a very fast car? He is sat in a very fast car. He's in a very, very, very good job with it. And I I can see why um why there's a feeling within Red Bull that what Verstappen's doing is is being overlooked. Um, I've said this a few times, um, and I, I don't really want to repeat myself, but it's only because people that have been following F1 for the last few years will will understand the comparison. He is basically going through exactly the same kind of underappreciation that Hamilton went through when he was dominating in Mercedes. But there's a slightly different dynamic about it this year, and I, and I'm loath to to suggest that one is better or worse and they're, they're, they're different and they're good in they're, they're good and impressive in, in in different ways but one of the things that makes Verstappen's year so impressive is that he spent most of it without the fastest car or certainly at least half of it without the fastest car and what people I think what some people what his critics are a bit too quick to overlook is that yes the the Red Bull is now the fastest car in Formula One I think it's the fastest car over one lap and it's the de- definitely the fastest car over a race distance but Max had this championship won before he had the fastest car. You know, the 
the run of Ferrari and Leclerc poles in the first half of the season. Max won a lot of races not starting from 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 first, and obviously as we've we've gone into detail in, in past podcasts, he's won three of them from tenth or uh, from from what was it uh, like seventh, tenth, and fourteenth, I think, are his lowly grid grid slots that have resu- resulted in wins. So he's he's been fantastic this season, and this was another good example of it because clearly the car was very good clearly the car was capable of eking out the tires in the way that they needed to be eked out and clearly Red Bull played it absolutely brilliantly with that strategy but Max still had to get it done and given that you know Checo is renowned for his tire whispering Max was the one who actually was able to do that and maintain a a more impressive pace across both compounds today and it's that time management that I think is an underrated part of Verstappen's skill set. They gave him an ambitious but achievable strategy to pull off, and he did it absolutely faultlessly. It was a, it wasn't a swashbuckling way to break the win record for the season, but it was a very, very good way to do it. It's one of my standard phrases, really, that the great drivers make the extraordinary look mundane. And it looks boringly dominant, but it's just because he's putting it together so well. And we should say as well, the Red Bull team as well are really on it and really sharp. They don't make the strategy errors so often. They said they were very surprised to see what Mercedes did. So it's just a great combination for Stappen and Red Bull really, uh, really thriving. And of course, 14 race wins now for Max Verstappen in a season. That's a record, break Sebastian Vettel's record of 13 from 2013. That was a 19 race season. This is a 22 race season. But of course, we've still got two races left. And yeah, it's difficult to compare years in that regard, but it's still 14 race wins in a season is pretty mighty. Mark, obviously, Sergio Perez got on the podium, third place, good for the home fans. They'd have been hoping for a a victory. But what did you make of his weekend? I was intrigued going into this weekend because with Red Bull having sealed both the Constructors and Drivers' Championships, its only task now is to try and get a 1-2 in the Drivers' Championship, which they've never done before. Um, And what better way of doing that than um, to help get Sergio a a victory on his home soil and, and maybe, you know, Possibly, we don't know, but Max may may not have been averse to helping him do that if if he could get himself in a position to do it, because Checo, after all, helped Max win in Spain earlier in the year. Um, but that it, he didn't get that opportunity because um, it, it all began going wrong in qualifying, really, with a faulty sensor, which meant he didn't know what his brake balance was. He had no instruments, etc., so that really that, that put him on the back foot. That put him fourth for the four fast cars. Um, he jumped at the opportunity Russell presented at the turn two to go third, and that, that was it, really. Um, had he not had the pit stop delay, he'd probably have been second. He probably would have undercut Hamilton. But some days you just don't get the opportunity to do your best stuff. So I'm not critical of his performance on this occasion. I, I think he was just a victim of circumstance, really. Yeah, I thought it was actually one of his uh, his better weekends during the time when it's been more difficult for him to again anywhere near Verstappen's pace had a few problems well executed third place so yeah decent weekends work there for Sergio Perez the the only thing I would say is um Max doesn't have a particularly great poker face because he's um he's just pretty blunt I think he says exactly what he means and having stood in front of him uh on Thursday when he was asked would you uh, would you help Perez this weekend um Max had absolutely no interest in even entertaining the idea I, I get that it might have been a little bit different when you're actually on track and if, you know, if Checo was actually, you know, harrying him in second place and putting a bit of pressure on, maybe Max would have considered it. But 
I don't think he had any any intention at all of just moving aside and making life easy. And I'd have been extremely surprised if he actually did that and if Red Bull indeed would have ordered it. Ultimately, the best drivers just want to win and win and win. And that's what Verstappen's been doing. But yeah, Perez was never able to put himself in a position where that might have been a question. Well, Mark, Ferrari was absolutely nowhere this weekend with Carlos Sainz fifth and Charles Leclerc sixth, very much in that no man's land between the top two teams and the rest. Very often it's been Mercedes cast in that role this season. Oscar Robledo from the Race Members Club asks, what happened to Ferrari this weekend? Well, Oscar, if you think back to Austria and Carlos Sainz's massive fiery failure there, that was a turbo failure because in the high altitude of that track, the small turbos on the Ferrari were running way faster shaft speeds than they could safely contain, as it turned out. And Mexico is much higher altitude than Austria. And a smaller turbo can generate the same boost as a bigger turbo by running faster. But uh, And in, in the thin air, it runs really fast. The, the, you know, the, all the turbos run faster to reach the same boost level as they would in um, a normal atmosphere. Um, but obviously, it took the Ferrari one past the safe... Um, shaft speed limit and so they had to turn the turbo way down to prevent a, a repeat of what happened in Austria so that they knew that coming in um, they also it, was, it, it wasn't in a happy place in terms of its tyre usage and it, it did, they didn't get a very good balance with it but um, that's probably not unconnected with it running a lot less power than it usually does so uh, yeah it, it was just not in a happy place and it also looked like a pretty nasty car over the curbs and those sweepers in the middle of the lap as well. So I think there are a multitude of, uh, of second-order problems as well. It just meant it was... No, and there was literally nothing Science or Leclerc could have done. They were just driving around in, a, in this strange little class of their own. So, yeah, zero they could have done to have done better. Let's take a trip to Grid Rival Corner now. Grid Rival, of course, is the fantasy motorsport game that lets you pick a team of five drivers and a team to pit your wits against fellow F1 fans and even some of us here at the race. While I'm very much focused on 2023 Grid Rival development now, you're still flying along nicely, Scott. So what's going so right? Um, I honestly think there were a few times earlier this season where I made some good choices and just got a bit unlucky. And now I feel like I'm making sensible choices and honestly getting a bit lucky. So I've had another... Um, four-figure week I've broken the I hadn't scored a thousand points at all until was it Singapore or Japan and now I think every race since then I've cleared the 1,000 point barrier so I think I've gained about 300 places in our league um, in the past three or four races had another had another strong one this weekend I had um, obviously Max Verstappen because who doesn't have Max Verstappen in their team but supported by uh, Lewis Hamilton, Lando Norris, George Russell, Valtteri Bottas, and I had Alfa Romeo as the as the team. So, yeah, quite a nice little collective collective run. And I think for the third week in a row, I've outscored our league leader, which I am actually very proud of. Well, I think you're just going pushing on with development late in the season. This is going to hurt you at the start of next year. Stable so, set of regulations. It all rolls over. Well, evolution, yes, but you can always make a step if you find the right idea. And on top in the race league is Raniel Dicciardo on a round 20,000 points, pulling a further 19 points advantage over Jackie 789-58103. It's incredibly close, so this final driver and team choice is going to be crucial in Brazil and Abu Dhabi. And our top scorer for Mexico was These Tyres Are Dead with 1,091 points, seven points clear of Roscoe. 
Who Lewis Hamilton themed team names there. It does sound like it, doesn't it? Yeah. It's a join in the fun on Grid Rival, and it's well worth doing to get a feel of the game ahead of the 2023 season when everyone will be battling to finish second to me, of course. Download the Grid Rival app or visit the Grid Rival website. The link is in the episode description for this podcast. Scott, let's talk about Daniel Ricciardo. He had an eventful race, emerging as best of the rest in seventh place, despite that 10-second penalty for causing a collision with Yuki Tsunoda that put the AlphaTauri out of the race. A question from someone who describes themselves, I should add, as the slightly less talented Jack Aitken. Now, this is because we were wondering whether Jack Aitken, when they last asked the question, was the Jack Aitken Williams F1 driver, did that one race in Sakir Grand Prix a few years ago. I'm not 100% sure whether the slightly less talented one might be Jack Aitken. Who's oh, that's unfair. <laughs> oh, that's hugely uncharitable. Who knows? Who knows? I haven't done a survey of all the Jack Aitkins, but no, very much uh, not trying to lay claim to be the, the racing driver. But the question is, 10-second penalty aside, this Grand Prix has felt like one of Daniel Ricciardo's best of the season. Are there any words of comfort you can offer to ease this Australian listener's two-year-long pain? <laughs> it definitely was one of Daniel's best of the season. I... I wouldn't get too um, carried away in terms of, I, I don't want to overemphasize the quality of, of of the drive because the quality was very good. The the, the pace was strong. Um, he set himself up for a really attacking finish with his ultra long first stint and then that long-ish final stint on softs. The main thing is, is that he was able to execute that strategy really well. He made use of the fact that he was on the fresh soft tires late on um, and the Sonoda incident aside, he did a really good job of just getting his head down, picking off the few people in front of him. And then when he had that 10 second penalty, building the gap. And I, and that obviously all sounds very much like a really, really good performance. And this was a very good performance, but it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like he emerged 12th or 13th on the same tires as everybody else with two or three laps, fresher rubber, and then just went on an absolute barnstorming drive lunging people left, right and centre. The circumstances were there for this drive, this result to be achieved. The 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 thing that I'm most encouraged about for, for Daniel and the thing that I was happiest for him about is that he was actually able to execute that. He was able to bring all of that together because it's, it's happened so rarely this season. And it was just really, really nice to see him on the attack and making the most of it. Yeah, it's... One of those difficult things, because it always seems like someone's being spectacular. I think I agree with you in terms of the fact it was good that he executed from this opportunity. I'm just to make a comparison. Ricardo came out in 13th place on those softs. It was 12th, really, because Joe was about to stop. And then he got through to 7th. Pierre Gasly came out in 16th place, also on the softs. And over the comparable stint, he was about a tenth and a half slower than Ricardo. So Gasly was motoring, and he almost got that final point from Bottas. So... I'm not trying to belittle what Ricardo's done, but it it was well executed, good opportunity taken. But I don't think we can take this as some kind of light switch moment. No, and he and he said um, he just wants to take this for what it is. It was a it was a good result on a, on a good day in which he had a good feeling in the car and and had a fun Grand Prix on the attack. And he doesn't want to overthink it. He just wants to enjoy it, revel in it for the next few days, and hopefully when he goes to Brazil. It will have led to something. He'll have learned something. But I think he's been through this enough now to not get carried away. He just wants to appreciate exactly what it was, a good afternoon's work and a, a, a deserved points finish. I think the thing that he really appreciated was that he went out and earned that points finish. Whereas by his own admission in Singapore, effectively inherited track position and then defended, held on basically. And he's like, he feels like 
he feels like that's basically been what his McLaren stint's been about. When he's had those good results, it's generally been that he's not lucked into it, but obviously he's just got into a position and then had to defend it, whereas he's rarely been on the front foot, which he was today. Yeah, and the good thing is he enjoyed it, which he hasn't enjoyed a lot of races in recent times, so it's just positive from that regard. Mark, a question from Oscar Robledo who asks, is a time penalty 10 seconds in Ricardo's case and five seconds in Gasly's case? That was for the move he pulled on Lance Stroll early on. Actually, the penalty was for gaining an advantage by running off track rather than forcing another driver off track. He says in Gasly's case, he came close to making up time on Bottas. So I guess, Mark, this is a question about whether sometimes actually buying those penalties can be beneficial. Um, I guess so, but I hate the principle of time penalties anyway. I think um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm from a, an era of racing where drivers did used to crash into each other every now and again. It just added the unpredictability. And there might be a bit of an argy-bargy about it afterwards, but there was no code. There was no, this is worth 10 seconds and this is worth five seconds. And we didn't like the way you went around that corner. I, I hate all that. I, I hate the codifying of, of racing, which is supposed to be an intuitive thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I dislike both penalties. I thought uh, it should just be it's – it's more of a philosophical point than a particular incident than these particular ones. Uh, that's just how I feel about them. Well, Yuki Tsunoda felt that the penalty was justified. Scott, what did you make of it? It was that move into turn six from Ricardo. Um, he, I just think he got, he got a bit carried away. Um, he was obviously at the start of his mission at that point. He didn't want to lose any more time than he needed to. He thought he saw a bit of a gap. Um, he claims he wasn't really trying to overtake at that point. He just wanted to sort of be a bit of a nuisance and then hopefully that would then prize the door open in the second half of the corner because I guess he thought he'd like spook Yuki or something like that. Um, but he, he, he got it slightly wrong and I think Sonoda was entitled to turn in when, when he did. Yuki could have left a bit more room. Daniel could have, bit more, could have been a bit more cautious. I'd have been, I don't think it was ever likely to be ruled out as a racing incident, especially the way we are in F1 these days. It didn't bother me a huge amount that Ricardo was blamed for it, but um, I kind of get the point that Oscar's making, which is just like, if you are if you decide that these penalties have to exist, to sort of build on Mark's point about philosophically, is this right or wrong? If, if we live in a world where those penalties have to exist, then I kind of feel like they do need to hurt Whereas you can game a five or 10 second penalty. Because if you're being held up by a driver, biff them out of the way or force them off the road, take the place, get the five second penalty, but disappear up the road yourself. And then it doesn't matter that you're getting this time penalty, does it? So that that is something that is a bit weird about this penalty system. Yeah, it's just a fact of life now in, in Formula One, isn't it? And uh, I think, I don't know if Ricardo would have been weighing up penalties in his mind or anything and did a good job to, to make up for it uh, in the end. But yeah, I... I do share some of Mark's concern about the, the way this this stuff is is dealt with and uh, and done and the the penalties are, are applied. But you've got to be a little bit careful. The punishment does fit the the crime, and you don't want people buying an advantage that they think's worth paying the penalty for because they can get some clear air. Right, Alpine Scott McLaren gained four points on them to close the gap in the battle for fourth in the constructors' championship. It's just seven points now, but things would have been different had Fernando Alonso not hit trouble. Can you explain what happened to him, given he was pretty well placed to finish seventh? He had what I feel in modern F one in the hybrid era felt like quite an old school engine problem in that his uh, engine dropped a cylinder, um, which uh, anyone who's ever sort of had that kind of issue had a 
you know, dodgy spark plug or something like that in their road car knows that it, it can often sound a bit poorly. So Alonso basically was in a limp mode effectively for I think the last sort of 13 or 14 laps of his race. And then the engine just gave up for good. Um, what was it? I can't remember. Eight laps from the end, something like that. Um, so he was on course for a, for a very easy seventh place. Um, he'd done a great job of um, managing the race early, early on, keeping Bottas just behind him after after jumping him at the start done everything right like like he has done on several several occasions this year and once again for alonso it all comes to nothing to to quote him always car 14 it's it's only ever on car 14 i don't necessarily agree with that ocon's had two or three problems this year but i will absolutely agree that alonso has had the lion's share of the the problems over at alpine yeah, Ocon did point out the car 31s had a few problems this year when he was asked about that uh, uh, as well. But yeah, you can understand why he's frustrated. It's interesting, he was 10, 11 seconds ahead of Ocon, I think, when he first hit the problem and started to drop back. Really strong performance again, I thought, from Alonso. And in that fourth place in the Constructors' Championship battle, it's it's one of those ones that just keeps swinging one way or the other within races. So uh, yeah, I, I that one's going to go all the way down to the last lap in Abu Dhabi, isn't it? Oh, I've got a quick question for the two of you because this is what I asked Otmar Zafnau, the Alpine team principal, after the race. This is yet another Grand Prix in which Alpine looked like they were going to pull away even further from McLaren and yet a reliability problem strikes and all of a sudden McLaren go from being in the sort of lower part of the points and staring at a bigger deficit to Alpine to suddenly outscoring Alpine and chipping away at them. Obviously, over the course of the, the season, the Alpine has been the faster car. If Alpine had good reliability, Alpine would be running away with fourth in the championship. McLaren would be nowhere near them. Alpine's position is that it doesn't matter how much they beat McLaren by, where they're at at the moment and what they're trying to achieve. All that matters is at the end of the year that they do finish fourth. But given the season that they've had and given the performance differences between the two cars, do the two of you think that it matters if Alpine beats McLaren by six points or 60? Not especially. Not not once we're at this point when it's only seven points difference, I guess. That they could they could have they could have scored a lot more points and potentially had that, that bigger win. That would have been nice, but you, you only need to win by one point to get that big step in prize money. Yeah, I mean their their target was was fourth place, wasn't it? They they stated that at the beginning of the season, but yeah, I mean they could they could have won it by I don't know, yeah. 50 points, something like that. Um, they're, they're making hard work of it because of the reliability and also because of the good job that generally um, McLaren and Lando Norris are doing. Um, you, you would working with what they are pulling some results out of the hat uh, and that even when the, the car doesn't deserve it. Um, and he's quite often, you quite often you, you come through a weekend, you'll watch the practices, you'll look at the performance patterns and it's, it's clear the Alpine's got a, a good, you know, couple of tenths on the, the McLaren. And then come final laps of Q3, you think, oh, there's Lando. And he's, he's done the same time as Fernando, just about. And it, I think, you know, that's, um, I think it's, it's easy to overlook Lando's performances this year because the car's not as high up as it was last year. But I think he's been doing a, an incredible job. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it, that wouldn't, that wouldn't come into it at all if the um, if the Alpine wasn't so unreliable. But uh, it, it it just makes that interesting, and it? it's it's a slightly different um, got slightly different traits to each other in the the two teams and the two cars. 
And Norris actually had a quietly effective race today. He only finished ninth, medium hard strategy. That wasn't the right strategy. So he had a decent job and was the quicker McLaren driver overall. Obviously, the factors we talked about before with Ricardo on the softs or what switched that round uh, in the race. Let's talk Alfa Romeo, Mark. Valtteri Bottas picked up his first point since Canada in June, but 10th was disappointing considering the pace of the car. So how did he turn six on the grid into scraping a point ahead of Pierre Gasly and Alex Albon? Yeah, tyre choice again, just like Mercedes. Um, mediums and hards should have gone medium and soft. Yeah, in fairness, they were trying to keep them out long enough to do that. But then as mediums began to fall away, or they they, 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 they suspected they were, uh, that's how it looked like on the lap time, same with Mercedes, and they were looking at the hards that had just gone on the other cars, and they didn't seem too bad initially. Um, so they, yeah, they they, they they changed their mind and um, put them on the hards. And he, he got out ahead of Ocon on his outlap, but it was so close that Ocon was able to pass him on the, on the warmer tyres. And the pit call had been made quite late, so it wasn't an optimum in-lap. So were it not for that, Ocon probably wouldn't wouldn't have got past him. It would have made a difference at one place. Um, his brakes were running hot early on when he's running with Alonso, so he dropped back there. And all this with that same Ferrari power shortfall too. So I think the Alpha chassis is working really well since that upgrade in Japan and Austin. And um, it would be looking really impressive, I think, this weekend um, if it had had the the normal Ferrari uh, power, shall we say. And Bottas was really quick in Mexico as mm. well. He was back to that advantage over Joe that we saw really early on when Joe was still feeling his way in. So, yeah, definitely, definitely on form. A track, of course, where he took probably his most impressive F1 pole position last year. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. As always, we will finish off with a quickfire round of the Race Members Club question. So, Scott, first up from Danny Elliott. Would Mercedes prefer to finish third in the Constructors' Championship given the wind tunnel allowance next season? They've obviously closed the gap considerably to Ferrari here, so surely they'd want the extra wind tunnel time to potentially change the car philosophy for next season. Um, I understand the uh, principle behind that point, but I just think Mercedes is such a competitive sporting organisation that if you got the chance to beat somebody in the championship, I think it's just a motivation for everybody to try and finish second. And if you consider where the two teams started the season, then the prospect of beating Ferrari in the championship would be a massive achievement where they were six months ago. And I think that's a huge carrot for Mercedes. So no, I think they'd rather have the 
championship position and the prize money that goes with it as well than they would to have that extra, what is it, 5% of um, ATR allowances. Yeah, that's your consolation prize, I think, if you if you don't do it. Mark, another question from Oscar Robledo says, simply, what happened to Aston Martin this weekend? They were pants, weren't they? <laughs> there was... There was no <laughs> <laughs> great description. <laughs> there was no obvious reason. Um, they never got the car into a happy window with the tyres. It just never had any grip. Um, there's nothing about this track which should fundamentally punish this car more than the others. They just missed a sweet spot all weekend somehow, and um, they don't really know why. So uh, we don't know either. Yeah, we spoke to Tom McCulloch earlier today, and he said that obviously because they are a little bit marginal on Q1 often. If you don't quite get things right, and this is obviously a tricky circuit with the way you manage the tyres and mm. prep, et cetera, et cetera. They just weren't quite there and then never really got there. The grip wasn't really there in the race. So, yeah, I think it was just one of those weekends. Scott, a question from Christopher Partridge relating to Haas, who finished 16th and 17th today with Mick Schumacher and Kevin Magnussen on a weekend when the car really wasn't competitive. Schumacher has performed much better in his second season of Formula 1 than in the first this is his second season in F1, but his first in the new formula. Should Haas take a chance on him greatly improving next year in the second season of this new formula? Um, I'm, no, I'm not really I'm not really sure because I don't think that really comes into it. Basically, um, Mick had his sort of free pass in 2021. And the first half of this year was, if you were being generous, that was maybe the chance to learn F1 properly because he was actually racing other cars. The there has been a notable step um, since the Canadian Grand Prix onwards. He actually has been a lot more competitive. He's gradually chipped away at the qualifying deficit to Kevin Magnussen. He's out-qualified him a few times now. He has quite regularly out-raced him since the Canadian Grand Prix, finished ahead more often than not in races that they have both made the finish, made the finish and obviously he's had a couple of points finishes as well. So there's a lot about that that is obviously very positive, and I think Haas has taken that on board. But the main thing is that ultimately the question mark over Mick is how fast is he? And I don't think Haas gets that answer by just hanging on to him for a third year. It's not impossible that they will, but and and I would add that the prospect of stability in this new era of Formula One, he knows the team, he knows the car, um, and he's clearly got his head around better he's clearly got his head better around what the car needs so he could conceivably make a step next year but I'm not sure he necessarily has the capacity to make the step that Haas thinks he needs to make so I think this comes down to simply what Mick offers now versus what someone like Nico Hulkenberg would offer now rather than a theoretical potential that Mick could could have because I feel like Haas would have seen that and bought into it by now if it existed Next up, question for you, Mark, from Danny Elliott. Given the Sao Paulo track is also above sea level, albeit not as high as Mexico, do you expect a similar competitive order at the next race for the front runners? I think the altitude ultimately only hurt Ferrari here. They'll probably have to make some compromise with a power unit again, but nothing like as much as here. I think it's only seven or 800 metres altitude um, in the Lagos rather than 3,000 um the red bull and the merc contest should be reasonably close but probably not as close as here because the merc could get away with the tire drag design more in the in higher altitude but um yeah it'll be more level i think um but yeah it's it's always difficult to see past red bull this year Next up for you, Scott, from Danny Elliott. Do you have any insight on the driver's comments regarding numbers of people in the paddock over the race weekend? I believe the drivers had a few concerns regarding over-eager fans. 
Yeah, um, the main thing I would point out is that I can understand why this might have sounded a bit overly precious from the drivers at times. I have very little sympathy for people who are paid millions and millions of dollars a year to drive fast racing cars and then have the inconvenience of people asking for photos and, and autographs when, when they're spotted. That must be a horrible life. But the thing that was crossed the line this weekend is that it got a bit, it got quite personal space intrusive. Um, it, some people got quite grabby. There was um, there was clearly discomfort from the drivers about not necessarily going as far as their outright safety, but certainly a, certainly a strong feeling of discomfort and just being a little bit wary basically, of, of what was going on. Um, so I quite like what Daniel Ricciardo said, where he just sort of suggested maybe F1 could in, incorporate some paddock guidelines for the for the fans who do have paddock access, just to make it clear to them what is acceptable and what isn't. Because I feel like the Mexican fans are absolutely amazing, um, super enthusiastic and passionate. I think they think some got a little bit carried away this weekend. And it's not just something that happened here. It's been a bit of a growing trend of this increased presence in the paddock and maybe some people not behaving necessarily appropriately or totally respectfully but it was I think perhaps exacerbated in Mexico just because of the nature of the fans being as as enthusiastic as they are so I felt like the DF, F1 drivers this weekend just wanted to make a point of saying we really don't want to not have these people around but we can't have them around like this so maybe we can try and work out the best way to do it so that we don't cut the numbers we just make sure that people behave a little bit more sensibly. And I agree with that. I think that's fine. Mark, next question for you from Jack Aitken again. The pace of the Alpha Tauri drivers has been much closer than in 2022. Has Yuki Tsunoda stepped up massively this season or has Pierre Gasly's purple patch of form finally come to an end? I think Yuki's continued to develop and Gasly has clearly lost some motivation, whether from the uncompetitive car or the fact that he's leaving, I don't know. But um, I not that surprised that they've merged close together. I think it would have been very worrying for Sonoda had he not at least got close to Gasly in his third year. I think that's the least that would have been expected. And had he not done that, they, you would probably have questioned his his future uh, in in the in the Red Bull scheme. So um, yeah, I mean they're both good, quick, solid drivers, and uh, you, you know that I don't think. I don't think either of them are absolute megastars, but I think they're, they're both capable of, of great things in the right set of circumstances. Um, and yeah, as, as Sonoda's got more experience, he's got closer. But yeah, Gasly, he's, 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 the, the, the last few races, he's just clearly not been in a happy place and getting more and more frustrated. And um, yeah, I think that's probably showing through in his performance and it might well be showing through in the the level of service he's getting from the team as a result. Inevitably, we've had a few cost cap questions given the Red Bull accepted breach agreement. We did do a podcast a few days ago getting in depth on that, myself and, and Scott. But Mark, I want to put the first question to you because obviously we haven't heard from you on this. This is from Jeremy Husted who said, are rival teams overplaying their righteous indignation towards the Red Bull racing cost cap violation? Many other sports have caps but have varying levels of punishment for violations which those in F1 appear ignorant of. As much as they're trying to turn them into villains, they may be creating the opposite reaction and driving more to be RBR fans given their blatant hypocrisy. Um, I have no idea how they... The various individual fans are wired up, so I can't comment on whether they'll be that would be the result. Um, but in a competitive sport, of course, a rival team is going to be upset if there's someone if they think someone's pulled a fast one on them, whether they really have or not. You need that part of the competitive mindset is this 
you, you, the paranoia is so easily triggered because you know, that, that's just the heightened state, you know, the the, the mental space that you, you're in. Um, so I, I don't think the reaction is overplayed. I think it is, that is a genuine reaction. But I do think the actual effect of a what an what essentially is a four hundred grand overspend once you take out the um, overpaid tax that they didn't realise they could put in to the application. Um, I think that would be slight. I think the effect of that would be slight, four hundred thousand, given the total budget. And I think the penalty is a, enough of a deterrent. But I completely get why. Rival teams are um, are upset and don't think it's enough of a deterrent, um, but I'm sure it will be. Scott, one from Mark O'Neill on a similar topic, saying that in 2021, Red Bull were the victims of damage by other teams at Silverstone and the Hungaroring. With that in mind, is there something to be said about Red Bull going over the cost cap by an amount less than the cost of the damage? It seems to me that like-for-like like part replacement shouldn't be included in the cost cap if original parts are damaged due to another team. If that was the case, Red Bull wouldn't be over the cost cap. I can't, I see the point. I see where it's coming from. It's a little bit like... Um... It's a little bit like having to take engine penalties when you've had a because you've had an engine wiped out like Verstappen did um last year and like I think Perez did as well in that Hungary crash. Um so I, I, I take the point in principle. Um there there might even be a way of, of doing that using stewards' documents where if they determine that someone else is predominantly or wholly to blame, then you're then exempt from it. Um the problem is I don't really think that if I, I don't think that if Red Bull had avoided that cost last year of the damage, I don't think that would have just come out of the budget cap and they would have just spent that money on development because I've, that like that 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 is that is the penalty for for damage is you you it comes out of somewhere else in the pot the pot you don't just go okay well we're going to spend loads more this year now to make sure that. Um, we do the exact amount of development we were going to do and we take care of the, the, the damage costs as well. So, yeah, I, I I like the idea in principle of what he's saying that would be a bit fairer, but I don't necessarily think it actually changed the way Red Bull handled their, um, their actual spending, if that makes any sense. I'm not particularly keen on the idea. I can see why it logically makes sense, but when people suffered accidents and had to pay for damage when they were limited by actually the amount of money they had, not just the cost cap, no one paid for it. That's just a fact of life in racing, isn't it? I expect we've probably all paid out of our own pocket from our, our amateur racing activities for damage that wasn't our fault. That's just the way it is. So, yeah, I, I can see why you can make an argument for that, but I'm not especially keen on that one. Mark, Paul Lucas, the final question on this topic says, does the cost cap breach undermine Max Verstappen's driving achievements in 2021 if Mercedes had on average the equal quickest car anyway, as perhaps proved by the fact that Mercedes won the Constructors' Championship? And is any advantage from the overspend negated in effect by the damage costs Red Bull incurred from Mercedes at Silverstone in Hungary? Oh, well, I think the point that Scott's just made about the the, the, the spend on the the accident is a, is a good one and it, it covers that um, because, as he said, you you don't just um, equate the damage that you've done and, and spend more somewhere else. Um, does it undermine Max's driving achievements? No, it doesn't. Of course not. Um, and Mercedes won the Constructors' Championship essentially because its second car scored better than Red Bull's second car. So it, it's not really... And I don't think that's decisive either way, no. Yeah, and in terms of driving achievement, Max Verstappen's driving. The cost cap breach didn't help him 
produced brilliant performances in the car, so I don't, I don't think it really, really impacts him at all. And the final question for you, Scott, this is a really tough one from Danny Elliott. Can we have the Mexican band playing the official F1 anthem at every race? I think it sounds much better. <laughs> I saw a few comments along these lines around the time. Someone asked if it would be um, if it would be on Spotify and they'd be able to download it themselves. Um, the, it goes back to what I said about the um, just the... The, the way this event is and the pageantry around it it's the it's the sights the sounds the smells as well because the food in Mexico is absolutely amazing and actually you get in, in the paddock there's like taco stands and, and that kind of thing so you're getting uh, you get, you're getting pun not intended a real flavour of, of Mexico and okay some of it plays to some stereotypes as we see in a, in a few different races um, but I, I really like it and that um I've already said pageantry. What's 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 the word I'm looking for? But the uh, the the way they embrace it and make sure that it they 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 really really do put their own twist on things. You 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 know you're at the, the the Mexican Grand Prix or the Mexico City Grand Prix to use its official title. So I wouldn't actually like to hear that at every race or have lots of what makes Mexico great at every race because I think what does make it so special is coming here and being like there can be no other race that I'm at right now than. Than, than Mexico's F1 race and that's a really nice thing to have given your taco consumption this weekend I think you'd probably go for that amount of tacos I, I am more taco than man at this point of the weekend I'd like the F1 anthem interpreted with a a, a culturally appropriate musical style for every race so I don't know what we go to Brazil have I don't know samba style or something I think that would be a, be an interesting uh, uh, thing to try and do but not necessarily very practical what would the style be in Abu Dhabi Ed? that's a good question unfortunately my uh, I've got a argue my cultural ignorance there but that's half the point isn't it you can learn about these different musical styles i think that'd be an ideal way of doing it so you have 20 24 odd ones next year so uh they everyone can get working on that right now well thanks very much mark hughes and scott mitchell malm for your insight head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen loads to read there on the mexican grand prix if you haven't already done so, download our app as well. Search for The Race Media on your app store of choice. Also check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, our MotoGP podcast, and also take a look at our YouTube channel. Well, we've got a two-week gap now to the next race, but stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.